morning. It's uh, absolutely great to be with you on such a beautiful morning, uh, not just because of the, the weather that we're enjoying, but any time we uh, can celebrate baptism and God's covenant promises and covenant faithfulness to us as a, as a people, uh, it is always a, a great pleasure. Uh, this morning, I want to turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 13, uh, Luke chapter 13, uh, in the lead up to Easter, I want to spend a, a few weeks in Luke's gospel looking at the theme of the kingdom of God. Uh, and I think it's significant that the number one thing that, that Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God. Uh, it's everywhere in the, in the gospels and uh, it's impossible to miss. And if that's so, then it seems to me worth at least some of our time and attention and focus. Now, the kingdom in, is first and foremost a statement about God. It's, it's a message that God is king. You see, the story of the Bible is really the story of God making his good creation a glorious kingdom. It all started in the garden where God commissioned the people, to his people, to go to the ends of the earth to make the rest of the world like Eden. In other words, the garden kingdom was meant to become a global kingdom where people would rejoice and where the world would flourish under God's loving reign and rule. But sadly, as we know, God's kingship is resisted and the peace of the kingdom is shattered. And after the fall, the world... Uh, Making the world into God's glorious kingdom will now require a reversal of, of the curse and a renewal by grace. And that's exactly what God sets out to do. It's, it's, he's a king determined to reclaim his creation. He's a king determined to set right what sin has made wrong. And so after Adam and Eve's rebellion, God's reign is revealed as redemptive. And so the Bible story is really this is a rescue story, not about God rescuing sinners from a broken creation, but about him rescuing them for a new creation. And many Christians today think of salvation as leaving earth for heaven. But the story of Scripture is quite the opposite. The message of the, of the kingdom is not an escape from earth to heaven, but of God's reign coming from heaven to earth. And, and, and while the focus of, of God's reign is his people, the scope of God's reign is all of creation. And this understanding of the kingdom of God might be new to some of us, but it, it wouldn't have been surprising uh, to the first century crowds listening to Jesus. Because their collective hope was that God would come as, as king in order to redeem his people and restore his creation. What surprised them about Jesus' proclamation was who would bring it and how. Jesus establishes the kingdom in a way that is different from what they had expected and yet more glorious than they could ever have imagined. It, it, it's a kingdom that is counterintuitive and surprising because unlike any other kingdom that the world has ever known, this kingdom is built on grace and, it, and the king reigns with self-giving love. And in the passage we're about to read in Luke 13, what we're going to see in this passage is, I think, a number of 
the puzzles or mysteries, or you could say paradoxes of the kingdom of God. That is the, the, the sort of things where you think, yeah, I get that that's true, and I get that that's true, but how on earth are both true at once? And, and Jesus does a lot of that in his teaching on, on the kingdom of God. And, and as we read from Luke chapter 13, we're going to see how the kingdom of God involves tensions and, and things that make us wise if we understand them, but, it, but can at first glance seem a little bit confusing. So we're going to read from, cha- uh, from Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, and trust that God will speak to us. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were offenders, that, that, that they were offenders than all the others who, who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig round it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what's the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. 
when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you came from. Then he will begin to say, then, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he'll say to you, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures day, today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and on the, and on the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. I don't know about you, but I find Jesus' teaching very straightforward when it comes to one parable at a time. And I find it very confusing when I read it all at once. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you read one little parable, one little uh, bit of teaching, you think, okay, I understand that. And then you read another bit, and you go, I understand that. And then you put this bit next to that bit, and you find yourself saying, hang on, how are those both true? And Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, as we'll see, is chock full of paradoxes or puzzles or tensions or, or difficulties that are designed to make you stop and think about how they can both be true. So, for instance, I'll give you just some examples that, that uh, many of us will be familiar with, if not all of us. So is Jesus going to come before we expect it, like a thief in the night? Or is he going to come after we expect it, like a, bridemaid who, uh, a bridesmaid who's run out of oil because the bridegroom's taken a lot longer than, than she thought? Is he going to be later or earlier than we thought? Which is it? Do Faithful people get ransomed, healed, and restored like virtually everybody Jesus meets in the Gospels? Or do they sometimes end up with their heads chopped off and served on a platter like Jesus' cousin John the Baptist? Are we supposed to expect great success like a, a mustard tree that gives shelter to the whole of the garden? Or, are we, or will it involve failure? Like a, like a farmer who finds that 75% of his seed doesn't bear any fruit at all. Are we dealing with a narrow way that, that, that few find? Or is it a massive feast that involves all kinds of people from the highways and hedges? 
is the kingdom a free gift uh, which a loving father gives to his wayward son without asking for anything in exchange? Or is it unbelievably expensive, like a pearl that you have to sell everything in order to buy? And there, and there are lot, loads more, right? Paradoxes of the kingdom. And actually, I think a lot of us, if we stopped and thought about it, would find that the same question, those same questions pertain to the Christian life in general, just, as, just from the lives that we've led. Should we expect success, expect success or failure? Should we uh, expect suddenness? or delay and waiting? Should we expect breakthrough or obscurity and being in the dark? Should we expect suffering or deliverance? Is the Christian life impossibly hard or incredibly easy? Is it free or is it incredibly expensive? You see, there, there are just a lot of them in the Bible. And I, I, and I think if you were to think about your own life, many, many of us who have been believers for any length of time will have started to wonder, you know, sometimes life in the kingdom of God is, is a bit of a puzzle. It's, 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 it's paradoxical in the sense that there are ways in which it is this and it, there's ways in which it's that. And it's not quite as simple as saying it's always this or it's always that. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God is full of tensions or puzzles which are designed not to give easy answers, but to make us wise, right? When we see things in the Bible that are difficult to understand, they're not thrown in there to put people off the faith. They're, They're actually thrown in there to make people wrestle with reality, intellectually, spiritually, in our hearts, emotionally sometimes, and say, this is more complex, and I, and I just need to think this through and, and learn wisdom in how that and that can both be true. And in this chapter, we're going to find four in particular that are going to illuminate the whole Christian life and lead us to wisdom. And the first one is that the kingdom of God involves both sudden judgment and astonishing patience. In the chapter we've just read, it seems that at certain points, it seems that God is just going to judge suddenly, and at other points, it seems he's going to wait a very long time before judging anyone. The kingdom of God also comes with both influence and obscurity. And the kingdom of God is surprisingly exclusive, narrow if you like, and surprisingly inclusive, broad, inviting everybody. And the kingdom of God is both now. It's right here now for us to press into and not yet. And those paradoxes of the kingdom, I trust as we reflect on them and allow Jesus to be our teacher, as we learn from him about the tensions and the puzzles of the kingdom of God, we will find wisdom for living the Christian life if we do. So chapter 13 begins, doesn't it, with a challenging topic, something that comes up a lot in ordinary life, and it happens in in a particular case here. How do you process it when people are suddenly killed, and how do you see the relationship between sudden death and the judgment of God? Is there a connection? And if so, what is it? Now, we know 
from history outside of the Bible that Pontius Pilate, the, ba- the man best known for being the Roman governor who executed Jesus. But we, we know from history that Pontius Pilate was a, was a violent man prone to overreaction. I mean, if you re- just read the, the trial story of Jesus, you'd think Pontius Pilate's just a bit of a ditherer, a bit of a wuss. He gets pushed around by the crowd. But actually, one of the things that we know about him from other historians is that he was at times a very violent and irascible, uh, aggressive, hostile man that overreacted dramatically to little scuffles. And one of the things that we know that he's done from the story that we've just read is that he has killed some Galilean rebels and mingled their blood with their sacrifices which is not just bloodthirsty and and gross, but it's also sacrilegious, saying, I'm going to take the blood of the people I've killed, and I'm going to mix it with the sacrifices they're offering. It's just a vile trampling on the sacred within the Jewish context. And so what happens is, after those people have been killed, people talk to Jesus about it, presumably with the undertone of, do you think these people had it coming? I mean, that seems to be the question people ask uh, him about it. What, what do you think about that? Do you think these people deserved what happened? And actually, in our world, that's still a common uh, response, isn't it, right? Um, when 9-11 uh, tragically happened, you had um, all kinds of people, and this was uh, before social media, but you had all kinds of people saying, oh, yeah, it was judgment uh, the judgment of God on the, the people in New York for whatever it is. Uh, Hurricane Katrina. Oh, that's the judgment of God on, on, on New, New Orleans because it's such a pagan city or whatever it might be. People do that. You see, judgmentalism, as you see in this story and as you see in our own, our own life, judgmentalism is very comfy. You know, it makes me feel, feel great to think, oh, they had that awful experience. They deserved it. I don't. They did. And so people turned to Jesus and asked him the question, what do you think, Jesus? And Jesus, as he so often does, and I love this about him, he turns the question around on his audience and he says, do you think that they were any worse than anyone else in Galilee? No, they weren't any worse than anyone else. If you don't repent, you're going to perish as well, he says. Then, then he gives another example based on, on what you might call a natural disaster. So this isn't based on, on human evil like Pontius Pilate. This is a, like a natural calamity, a natural tragedy, which is, which is that the Tower of Siloam in, in Jerusalem has recently collapsed and it's killed 18 people. And again, this kind of thing keeps happening where, where natural disasters happen and people say, ah, you see, I remember this happening um, when there was the earthquake and terrible, terrible devastation in Haiti a few years ago. And all, you know, again, all kinds of preachers found a, a way of saying, ah, it's, it's hit the island of Haiti because of their history of voodoo or ancestral worship or, or whatever. You think, what are you talking about? It's in the Bible. People come to Jesus with that question. Is this because they are bad? And Jesus says, hang on a second. They're not worse than anyone else. You better repent because if you don't repent, you're going to perish as well. It's fascinating. When disaster strikes, we have two responses that we want to make. Either we see the people who died as unusually deserving of death, which is the judgmental response, or 
we do what many more of us are, uh, you know, is, is maybe more of a challenge for many of us. We see everybody as equally an innocent victim. But Jesus doesn't do either of those. That's not his response. Jesus says, all of you are deserving judgment. He, he says, it's, it's, not, it's not just them that are deserving judgment, but, but nor is it that, that, that you, are, you, know, you are blissfully innocent. Actually, all of you are deserving judgment, and if you don't repent of your sins, you're going to perish as well. Wow, that's a challenging response. And by the way, I'm not saying that necessarily the immediate response that you should make online if something tragic happens this week is, is the same response as Jesus. But you, but, you, but you see that when Jesus speaks, he's trying to challenge their assumptions that they are somehow innocent. And, and we saw that judgmental theme or the judgment theme, pardon me, the judgment theme pretty clearly if you were with us uh, last year for a recent uh, Revelation series. We, we kept coming again, up against the judgment of God in that series. The, the kingdom of God involves sudden judgment, and that's what Jesus is saying. Effectively taking place all the time in the world, and, and you need to repent lest it happens to you. And then no sooner has he done that then he tells a story, not about sudden judgment, but about the astonishing patience of God. He says the kingdom of God's like a man who planted a, f a, a, a fig tree and comes back every year to see if it's produced a, a, any fruit, and every year it, it doesn't. And then he eventually says to his vine dresser, oh, just cut it down, it's just a waste of space. And the vine dresser says, he talks him, he talks him out of it, he says, no, 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 hang on. Just let me do some more work. Let me dig a little bit more. Let me put a little bit more manure on it. I, I know it's frustrating, but let's just give it a little bit more time to produce fruit. Okay, next year if it hasn't produced any fruit, okay, then, then, then cut it down. But please, let me have another shot to see if I can, I can get some fruit out of this tree. It's a parable of the patience of God. And it's right next to a statement of the judgment of God. In other words, we all deserve judgment and we need to repent right now. But God is patient, waiting, arms outstretched for us to respond to him. I know that something in me would say that these guys are not producing fruit. Shall I cut it down? No, I'm not going to cut it down yet. I'm going to wait and wait and wait again because I want to see the fruit of my work take place in their lives. And that tension of sudden judgment and astonishing patience, that tension is what drives us to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to pray in hope of the kindness of God. It's a paradox of the kingdom that God judges suddenly and waits with astonishing patience. So the kingdom involves both judgment and patience, but it also secondly involves influence, great influence, and obscurity, great hiddenness. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts small, but eventually becomes uh, larger than all the other plants in the garden so that, that birds come and nest in its branches. So the, so the kingdom is a prominent thing, right? You can see it. Uh, the kingdom of God is visible. 
It's, it's noticeable. It's something that serves people. Co- people come to the kingdom of God like birds to a tree and say, I, I can nest here. I can find safety and shelter. So as, so as Christians, you should expect influence. You, you should expect breakthrough. You should expect visibility in this life. But at the same time, the kingdom is like leaven. A yeasty lump, basically, which a, which a wo- woman hid in a batch of flour. Uh, that image is, is kind of odd, I think. Uh, I'm not a baker, but I, I don't know many people who say, I have to try and hide this yeast inside. Shh, don't tell anyone. I'm hiding it in. It's just, it's just odd. We don't talk like that. But Jesus is deliberately using this imagery to denote the obscurity, the hiddenness, the invisibility of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom shapes the world. It leavens it. It, it, it. it yeasts the dough very, very subtly. So subtle you often can't see it. People don't know it's happening until you look back ages later and think, oh, wow, it's gone yeasty. The kingdom of God is so hidden. It's so ordinary. It's so obscure and unnoticed that the entire world can be shaped by it without anyone realizing it's happened. And that's an aspect of the kingdom that probably most of us living as we do in a very entertainment and social media and information-saturated society risk missing altogether if we're not careful. That the kingdom does not just come visibly, prominently, and tweetably or Instagrammably. Often the kingdom comes very obscure. People don't even know it's, it's, it's there in the ordinary, humdrum, obscure, invisible ways that no one's ever going to write about. So, so influence is great, right? I love it when the kingdom of God breaks out in visible ways like a mustard tree. I love it when people say, look at what God has done there. And, and, and many of us have even seen it in our own lives. We've seen it in the church in our day. Praise God for that. But, but we, 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 if we are not careful, and that's all we stress, we can end, up, can end up living like we're living in the Lego movie, right? Everything's awesome. Look at this. I mean, this is an, this amazing new thing. Wow. And you can just get so obsessed with the drama that you fail to notice that right next to that parable is another a parable about the fact that the kingdom is obscure and quiet and unseen. The kingdom comes as, as, as yeast very slowly spreads through a batch of dough. The kingdom comes through multitudes of, of people you've never heard of and never will. It comes through a woman getting up in the morning and making coffee and getting her kids dressed for school and remembering to read the Bible for a few minutes and pray to God about her day and working diligently in her office or her school or or whatever it is. And she loves her neighbors and she shares Jesus when she can and sometimes she forgets and sometimes she remembers and she loves, she shares the love of Jesus with them and she disciples her kids and she's faithful to her husband and at the end of the day she goes to bed again 
and then she gets up the next day and the same thing happens and it happens day after day, year after year and that's the kingdom of God. That's you, many of you, many of us. We don't feel like mustard tree people who are very visible. We feel like leaven people who have been hidden in obscure dough, an obscure workplace, an obscure street, an obscure family. Having said that, of course, we mustn't overbalance again and say, oh, no, actually, the only noteworthy Christian work has to be done silently because at the same time, God does raise uh, people and churches to positions of prominence. And when he does, we want to celebrate it and not swing into the attitude of, oh, no, they're famous. They must be doing something wrong. That's no good either. We must understand that the kingdom sometimes comes with massive profile and sometimes comes utterly invisible, and both of them represent the same kingdom and the same king. So the kingdom of God involves both influence and obscurity. Thirdly, and I'll be a bit briefer on this, but the kingdom of God is both surprisingly exclusive and surprisingly inclusive. So someone comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, will the number of saved be few? As in, are not very many people going to get saved? How, I mean, how many? What, what's the answer? And Jesus gives a remarkably paradoxical answer, a remarkably tension-filled answer. On the one hand, he immediately says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Right? It, it, the way into the kingdom is hard and narrow. You have to die to yourself and follow Jesus instead. Now that's hard, right? That, that's narrow, and many people don't find it. The, the kingdom is incredibly exclusive. It's exclusive to all except those people who come to Christ and turn from their old lives and trust Jesus for a, for a better one and do what he says instead of what their heart says. That's a very demanding and kind of sort of uh, entrance policy, isn't it? But then Jesus says it's also breathtakingly inclusive. He says, verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to be filled with people from all over the world. Everyone is invited. Billions from all over the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to come into this. You think, hang on a second, how is the kingdom that inclusive at the same time as being, being that exclusive? And Jesus says it's both. Because the, the entry requirement for all of those billions of people, how, how, all they have to fulfill is simply to die to themselves, renounce their sin, repent, and trust Jesus. But if they do that, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what kind of, of tribe they come from, language they speak, class they come from, place in society, how much or how little money they have. None of it matters. What education, job, who cares? If you repent of your sin and trust Christ, you're in. Billions of them from east, west, north, south, all of them invited to recline in the kingdom of God. So we have a kingdom that is very inclusive and very in exclusive at the same time. Some of you know that we often sing a song in this church called In Christ Alone. 
uh, a beautiful song about the exclusivity of Christianity. It's written by a guy uh, named Stuart Townend. And the song in Christ Alone is a wonderful statement about the exclusivity. It's only in Christ that I find life. That's where hope is, is really found. But Stuart Townend has also written a song that I think is a wonderful statement of the unthinkable inclusivity of the, of, of the kingdom. It's a song called Vagabonds, which he wrote a few years ago. And I love how it opens. It says, come all you vagabonds, come all you don't belongs. Winners and losers, come people like me. Come all you travelers tired from the journey. Come wait a while, stay a while, welcome you'll be. Come all you questioners looking for answers and searching for reasons and sense in it all. Come all you fallen, come all you broken. Find strength for your body and food for your soul. Come to the feast, there is room at the table. Come, let's meet in this place with the king of all kindness who welcomes us in with the wonder of love. And the power of grace. And I love the fact that the same writer can write a song uh, about saying it's only in Christ. And then write another song saying everyone's invited. And those two themes, the inclusivity and exclusivity of the kingdom of God are found right here in Luke chapter 13. And then fourthly and perhaps uh, most importantly, the kingdom of God is now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. I mean, the kingdom of God is clearly now in this passage because Jesus is bringing the kingdom with him and he's walking up to a woman who is unable to straighten herself and he simply says the, the words, woman, you are freed from your disability and immediately she straightens herself. I love the old King James Version rendering of the, this. Woman, thou art loosed. You know, I love the, the power of that, of, of, of that phrase. You are loosed from the things that have been holding you back. She's a daughter of Abraham. She's been bound by Satan for 18 years. This is an outrage. I'm going to set her free. The kingdom is here now. We, we don't have two rivals, you know, Satan versus, uh, versus Jesus. I wonder who's going to win. No, Jesus speaks. Satan is defeated. End of story, right? The kingdom is here now. But the kingdom is also not yet. Towards the, the end of the chapter, we find a, a very different sort of picture of the coming of the kingdom. Herod is trying to kill Jesus. Jesus knows he's got a few days of, uh, of healing and deliverance, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. You know, you know, things that you and I might sometimes want to happen don't happen. We don't always see exactly what we want. We don't always see the, the breakthrough that we believe God might give us. And Jesus himself is in that same position. Things that Jesus is wanting to happen don't seem to happen. So he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent, uh, uh, those sent to it. How often I've wanted to gather you like a hand gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't come. So again, we, we face a tension, right? Does everything that Jesus wants happen you know, straight away, no questions asked? 
Or does he often find opposition and stubbornness and the obstruction of sin? Jesus says at the end of this chapter, there's going to be a day when you will all acknowledge that I uh, acknowledge who I am and worship. He says, you're not going to see me again until the day that you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that day has not yet come. One day it will. The kingdom will be here fully and everyone, everyone will acknowledge blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But for right now, it hasn't come yet. The kingdom's here, but it's not yet fully here. And the fancy term for that, if you want to feel like you're getting your money's worth this morning, is inaugurated eschatology. That is, the kingdom has started, but it hasn't finished. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. The end is certain, but not yet experienced. And the oft-used illustration, it's like the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. Right? The the, the D-Day landings where the ground is taken... That means that the result of the Second World War is is clear. Everyone knows who's going to win. But there's still a years-long mopping up operation to happen in between the landings and the conclusion of the war. And that's the age we're in now. That by Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead and pouring out his spirit has established the beachhead in Normandy. And we are now in the age where we know the result, but we're still living in the mopping up operation before the war is over. And my favorite statement of this comes from Winston Churchill on the night that he found out that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. It's 1941. Uh, So if you know the history of the Second World War, we're two years into the war, four years still to go. But as soon as Churchill hears the Americans have been attacked, Churchill knows that the results of the war is over. He knows that the Americans are so much more powerful than everybody else that his side of the war was going to win. And he said this that night, and then he goes to bed. He said, we had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The commonwealth of nations and the empire would live. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at this moment care. No doubt it would take a long time, many disasters and immeasurable costs, when tribulation lay ahead. But there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed. And I slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. That's an astonishing statement, isn't it? That I have seen something happen that is so dramatic that even though its implications are going to take years and years to work out, I know that the end is secure. And that's the paradox of the kingdom of God. I mean, you still get Jerusalem rejecting Jesus. You still get people killing Jesus. People are are still rejecting Christ and still suffering and getting sick and dying. And some people refuse to repent and they perish. And there's no, but there's no more doubt about the end, right? There's no doubt. 
Because Jesus says at the same time, this daughter of Abraham is going to be loosed from her sickness and captivity. And I'm telling you, there's going to come a day when all of you are going to see me and you're going to cry, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is no more doubt about the end. Jesus one day is going to say not just to that woman. He's going to say to you and to me and to creation as a whole, creation, thou art loosed. You're free. And that day is still to come. We live in hope of that day when the kingdom is fully here. But in the meantime, the kingdom is now spreading through dough like leaven. It's growing like a a mustard seed into a big tree that all the birds of the air can find shelter in. And we get to pray for the kingdom to come now. To invite people from east and west and north and south to share at the table in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the king and for the mysterious beauty of the kingdom of God. It makes so much sense of our world. It makes so much sense of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that for all that we have seen, and we have seen some wonderful things both as a church and as individual believers, but but we know that the best is nowhere near here. We are waiting for a day when all things will be made new. We're waiting for the triumph of the kingdom, for the goodness of God to be all in all. And we wait for that day, Lord, as, as servants of the king, looking to proclaim and to embody and live out the, the kingdom of God everywhere we go in our daily lives. And so would you help us by your spirit to live in light of that kingdom in our lives today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.